If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, here in just a little bit, that's going to be our text for this morning. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. It's going to be a very familiar text, but a text I think we can learn some things from. A rule that we follow in corrections that is pretty much true in life is the rule that states past behavior predicts future actions. There are different uh, tests that we give uh, the men and the ladies that are part of TDOC to kind of predict whether or not they're going to be violent, to kind of predict what kind of classes they need to help them rehabilitate, because I do believe in rehabilitation. I do believe that it can happen, but I also believe that not only in the corrections world, but in, in our world as well, much of the change we see in people is short-lived, depending upon the audience and the circumstances. People say, well, I've changed, and quite often what they really mean is I've changed for right now. I've changed because I'm talking to you, or I've changed because I'm in this particular situation, but quite often when the audience changes or the circumstances change, past behavior creeps in and the person repeats their past behavior. For lasting, long, life-changing change to take place, something drastic needs to step in and happen. And the same is true in our spiritual lives as well. Many folks claim to be saved. They've said a prayer. They raised a hand, they filled out a card, they were baptized, they, they did something somewhere long ago that, that punched their ticket into heaven, and since that time, they have gone on their way, not giving that moment so long ago very much thought. We might even have, excuse me, we might even have someone here today that somewhere along the line you've made some kind of decision, but you truly don't understand what it means to be saved or to be born again. And the book of Acts is full of conversion stories, and each one of them are different and unique in their own way. But this morning, I want us to examine one man's conversion and see what happens when Jesus interrupts our life. Remember last week, last couple of weeks, we talked about Jesus being Lord, and when we make him Lord of our life, he's going to move in and clean house. Well, what is it that happens when Jesus interrupts our life? And Really, I should have preached this message before last week's message. So if you want to, this can kind of be a prequel. Uh, before Jesus cleans house and moves in, he's got to become Lord of your life and you've got to be saved. So what does that mean? So as we start looking at Acts chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 1. Acts 9 verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a bright light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, 
but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he, was, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered his house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. In verses 1 through 9, we see a risen Jesus confronting Saul. And when we see verse 1 where it says, Then Saul, there is a principle in biblical interpretation called the principle of first appearance. The first time you see someone mentioned in Scripture, you need to pay attention. Because a lot of times it will reveal something about that person. Well, the first time that we see Saul mentioned in Scripture is back a couple of pages in Acts chapter 5 and verse 58. And we come to the end of Stephen. Stephen has given his sermon, and the Jewish leadership is getting ready to stone Stephen. And it says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, And they, the religious leaders, cast him, that Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named... Saul. Now between chapter 7 and verse 58 and chapter 9 and verse 1, Saul has taken it up, up, upon himself to be a one-man wrecking crew for the disciples of Jesus. He has developed an intense hatred and an intense passion and he's made it his mission in life to wipe out those people who practice and are participating in what they call the way. By the way, that term, the way, is used several times in the book of Acts, referring to the fact, remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me? This idea of the way, they're following Jesus. They're following the way of Jesus. And matter of fact, Christians weren't called Christians in Jerusalem. They were called Christians first at Antioch. Acts 11 and verse 26 tells us that. We use the term Christian today. The first century Christians used the term the way. Are you part of the way? I'm part of the way. And, and people would understand what that was. But Paul had decided it was his mission in life to get rid of these blasphemers. They have upended the apple cart as far as the religious 
the Jewish religious world's concerned. And Paul says, that can't happen. They can't be in the temple of my God. They are destroying what everything God stands for. And so he is on his way. You get to verse 2. The Jewish Sanhedrin only had authority in Jerusalem. They didn't have authority outside of that. So Saul goes to the high priest, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, and he says, I would like to have a warrant so that I can go to the synagogues in Damascus and bring those Jews who are claiming to be part of the way back to Jerusalem to stand trial. That's what we would call a warrant, right? I want to go get them. I want to bring them back here so that he can stand trial. And so the high priest knew that, and he's journeying, verse 3, on his way to Damascus, fully intending to round up a bunch of Christian folks and bring them back to Jerusalem. Everybody with me so far? A funny thing happened on the way to Damascus. Hank Williams might have sang the song, I Saw the Light, but Paul saw the light. Amen? Amen. There are three... Uh, recordings of Saul's conversion in the book of Acts, and another one of them tells us it was about noon. So the sun is at its highest point in the sky, and all of a sudden, in verse 3, a bright light shone round about him from heaven. He falls to the ground. Quite often, that's the way we react to a bright light. Have you ever, and all of you have, at night, especially when you're driving now, have you ran into one of those folks that have the LED lights and they have them on bright and they just hit you and your first thing you want to do is take your hands off the steering wheel and just go like that? What I want to tell these folks is I'm glad you guys can see a mosquito 500 yards away, but I can't see the road because I'm blind now. You know, well, Saul saw the light and it knocks him to the ground and all of a sudden in verse 4, he hears a voice. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Now, if you would, put yourself into Saul's shoes. Here you've got this warrant in your pocket. And you're walking very confidently with a group of men into Damascus. The Christians that are there know why you're there, but you don't care. You're Saul, and you have the, all the authority of the Jewish religious system behind you in that warrant. But right before, right as you see in the city, a bright light hits you. And man, you're blinded, and so you drop to your knees. And if the light's not bad enough, you hear a voice that calls you out by name. That'll mess a fellow up, won't it? The light's enough. But to hear a voice, and it's not just a voice that says hello. It's a voice that says, Saul. Whoever's behind that voice knows who you are. And can I jump out of our story for just a second to remind you that God knows who you are? And Jesus knows where you are? Saul knew exactly, or Jesus knew exactly where Saul was. Saul was right outside of Damascus. And I just sometimes wonder, whether Jesus looked over at his father and said, watch this. This is going to be good. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Why are you out to get me? Because understand that when Saul was persecuting these Jewish believers of Jesus Christ, he was persecuting Jesus, right? He persecuted them. He's persecuting Jesus. So Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, he makes the first of two questions that every person that wants to be saved has to ask. First of all, he says, who are you, Lord? Don't you suspect Paul had a good idea who that was? He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul knew exactly why he would. Now, by the way, I'm liable to interchange Saul and Paul in this story because Saul later becomes Paul. I know the difference in the two, but understand if I say Paul, I mean Saul, okay? So just give me, a, give me the benefit of the doubt on that. But I think Saul knew who he was in his heart of hearts because he knew full well who he was going to persecute, right? He was after those folks that were claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. But this idea of who are you, Lord, if I ask you the question, have you been saved, or you ask the question, how do I know I've been saved, in some shape, form, or fashion, you're going to have to settle the question in your mind is, who is the Lord? Who is Jesus? Remember, and you don't have to turn there, you can, but you, you can go back and look in Matthew 16. You can go back and read that. I'll, you can make sure I'm not making all this up as I go along. In Matthew 16, Jesus has a conversation with his apostles. And Jesus says, who do people say I am? And the apostles say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Who am I really? And remember Peter's great confession. Peter said, you are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven. Upon this rock, that's Peter's confession, that Jesus is Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who is Jesus? You see, today you ask the question, who is Jesus? You get a bunch of different answers. Somebody says Jesus was a good teacher. Somebody says Jesus was a miracle worker. Somebody said Jesus was trying to cure all the social justice and, and all the injustice in the world. Jesus did do those things. But more than anything else, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the anointed one that was sent from the Father to save your soul, to save my soul, to save Saul's soul. So that's the first great question. We'll come to the second in just a minute. So there Saul is. He's on his knees. The bright light is blinding him in his eye. He hears a voice. He can't see anybody. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says a strange thing, Jesus does. It's hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. To put that in 21st century language, what Jesus would say is, it's hard to keep running into that brick wall, isn't it? It's an impossible situation. Goads and pricks are things that, that, that farmers would put on their livestock. If, the, if they would start getting out of line or out of the way, it would stick them in the side, kind of like a sharp stick, a cattle prod, a, kind of a forerunner to a cattle prod. 
How much success, if you wanted, how much success would any of us have running through a brick wall? Probably not much, right? That'd be pretty much, we'd say people were crazy to do that, right? So Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you keep running into that brick wall? And so then Paul, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. I am Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't tell us, but I can pick, put yourself back in Saul's view again. There you are on your feet or on your knees. You've been knocked off your feet by the light. You hear this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Luke doesn't record this, but I'm sure Luke is saying deep in his heart, I was afraid of that. Don't you imagine? I kind of figured that was you. I figured that was you, Jesus. And then Saul asked the second great question in verse 6. It says, so trembling and astonished. Do you suppose those words are understatements? If you were in Saul's shoes, would you be trembling and astonished about this time? It's like, oh my goodness, the very next question comes up, then, then what do you want me to do, Lord? You've told me who you are, what do you want me to do? The two great questions that anybody has to ask. Now people get saved from a variety of places. Every salvation experience, every conversion, conversion is unique. The book of Acts is full of conversions and all of them are different. The situation's different. But in some shape, form, or fashion, every person that's ever been saved has had to, had to ask, who are you, Jesus? And come to terms with who Jesus is and acknowledge that. And second, what do you want me to do? You have the right to tell me what to do. Remember we talked about that last week. That's what it means to make the Lord the Lord of your life. It's giving, your, giving up the throne of your life, giving up control of your life, letting Jesus have it. What do you want me to do? I believe Saul was saved right here. And picture Saul. This is an instantaneous change of mind for this man. He had been raised as a Jew. He had been educated at the greatest seminaries of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. He knew the Old Testament much better than a lot of the priests knew the Old Testament. He was fully headed to Damascus, ready to be a tool to take all these folks to prison. And after meeting Jesus on the Lord, or meeting the Lord on the road, Saul immediately puts all that behind and he says, what do you need me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. So Jesus tells him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, verse 7, Saul wasn't traveling by himself. There was a group of men with him. We forget about those men. So imagine how they felt. Man, what in the world is going on? They heard a voice. They didn't hear anybody. What's happening here? They, were, they stood speechless, but hearing a voice, but seeing no one. I want you to imagine, how would... How would you feel if you were back on a dark country road 
Y'all ever driven back on those country roads in the dark where there's not any light and it's it's pitch black dark and uh, maybe you're there and you turn the lights off you can see the stars. That's a terrific thing to y'all do that sometimes. It, it's it's encouraging. It, it'll it'll take your breath away. But while you got all the lights out, a bright light appears. It's so bright that you can't see and you hear a voice out of it. You think it was an alien, wouldn't you? Many movies, as we science fiction movies we've seen. Don't you imagine these guys were astonished? They, they hear the voice. They can't see anybody. Verse 8, Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw nobody. So he, he opens his eyes, but he, he can't see, partially because of the light, but partially because he's been blinded. He heard a voice, but seeing no one, he arose from the ground. Verse 8, his eyes are open. He saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So they took him by the hand. You've seen and I've seen how you, you lead a blind person around. That's what they had to do with Saul there. And they took him into Damascus and said he was three days without eating and drinking. I'm convinced that's not because of the light. Paul was fasting. He's just had an encounter with the Lord. He's just given his life over to the Lord. And what do you do when you have a big revelation, a big change in your life? Fasting. That was very big in the Jewish religion. Paul fasts. And I'll, we'll get to something in a minute. I'll give you another reason why I think Paul was, was fasting. I don't think this was because he couldn't eat or drink. I think he was fasting. Getting into verse, verses 10 to 19, the first nine verses, Jesus confronts, a risen Jesus confronts Saul. Now a risen Jesus is going to commission Saul. Keep reading in our story. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. When you go back and read Old Testament, your Old Testament, quite often when you hear the Lord call somebody, the answer that they give is, here I am. That's what, now, if the Lord were to call me and were to say, Andy, I'd be like, you got to be kidding. What? It, it, it just amazes me. You'll read the Old Testament. God will speak to these people and they'll say, here I am. Like God talked to them every day. Maybe he did. But God talks to Ananias. Ananias says, here I am. And he says, I need you, verse 10, to get up and go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. What goes along with fasting? praying, right? So if Saul was praying, I believe he was fasting. He was doing both of those things. He says, you need to go see him. You need to go to him. Because in verse 12, he has seen a vision and he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind us all who call on your name. Now I'm going to plank paraphrase this into 2021. You all ready? God says, Ananias, I want you to go find Saul. And you need to go meet him. Ananias says, you have to be kidding me. Really? Seriously? Do you know who that is, God? He takes people to jail. He hangs around while your people are killed. He's the Gestapo. 
You want me to go there? Lord, are you sure that I, I'm, I'm hearing this right? Are you sure you don't have your wires crossed a little bit? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, how many times do we see the phrase, but God? Here's another one, but God. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God basically, basically says, Ananias, I know the Saul you see. I know the Saul you've heard about. He said, I, have, I know another Saul. And I have big plans for this Saul. This Saul is going to be my missionary to foreign lands and nations and dignitaries, as well as to his own people. And Ananias could have said, Lord, you probably better find somebody else to do this. Notice what Ananias says. Verse 17, Ananias went his way, entered the house. He obeyed, even though he may not have fully understood, even though he may not have been fully comfortable. Sometimes the Lord will call us to do things that aren't comfortable. It's our job to obey. That's what Ananias did. He obeys. He goes to see Saul. He says, Brother Saul, he lays hands on him. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Ananias, I believe Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. I believe when he said, Who are you, Lord? And understood who Jesus was. And when he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's, he's turned his life over to Jesus at that point. He's repented. He's got a new heart, a new mind, a new purpose. But Jesus isn't finished with him. For every person that's saved, there are next steps. Are you with me? Everybody that is saved, it just doesn't stop at salvation. There are next steps. Saul had at least three. Ananias said, I came to lay hands on you, to give you the Holy Spirit, and so you can receive your sight. Notice he doesn't say anything about getting forgiveness of sins. That's already happened. But he says, your next steps are to do these things. God in his unhuman-like thinking has chosen to include us humans in the process of conversion. Now it's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that do the converting, but it's humans that help point the way. It's humans that help guide. Jesus has already saved Saul, but Saul needed someone to show him what's next. Someone to say, what do I do now? And God blessed Ananias to be able to do that. You realize you and I get blessed that way to people God puts in our paths? Just a lot of times we don't see it. But that's a blessing that God gives his chosen people. Finally, verse 19. Well, verse 18. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight. He arose and was baptized. One of the first things that he does after being saved and getting his sight back, he's baptized. That is a next step that virtually any example in the book of Acts of a conversion, all of them are baptized. Christians need to be baptized, I think, very soon after they're saved. It's a public declaration. The water doesn't save us, 
The water has never saved anyone, but the water is symbolic of what the Holy Spirit has done inside of us. And symbolically, when we're buried in water, we are buried to our old man and we're raised to walk in newness of life. We need to do that. And after that, verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So that's the conversion of Saul. Verses 1 through 9, a risen Jesus confronts Saul. Verses 10 to 19, a risen Jesus commissioned Saul. So as we look at that and we wrap this lesson up, I want us to look at the anatomy of a conversion. While each conversion story in the book of Acts and each conversion story, even in this building, we, are, we were all at different places, all doing different things. There are some things that happen in every conversion that help us understand what it means to be born again from above. Remember when Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, you must be born again from above? There's some things that's happened, and I've got ten of them. Don't have a heart attack. I'm not going to spend ten minutes on each one. Ten things that happen at every conversion. Number one, conversion is by God's grace. Every person that's ever been saved, even from Adam and Eve forward, has been saved by God's grace. I am not and you are not good enough, smart enough, religious enough, or anything enough to save ourselves. Our salvation, my salvation, is a gracious gift from God. Grace means unmerited favor. I didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. God gives it to us anyway. What a God. Amen. Amen. Every person that's ever been saved, Saul recognized that. He said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, it's by God's grace I'm saved. And y'all, it's by God's grace I'm saved. And it's by God's grace you're saved. Every person that ever has or ever will be saved is saved by the grace of God. Number two, all conversions involve a soul-saving encounter with Jesus Christ. If you're going to be saved, you have to encounter Jesus. It's not about filling out a card. It's not about getting dumped in water. It's not about saying a prayer. It is about encountering a risen Savior. Do you hear me? It's about Jesus. It's about acknowledging what will you, who is Jesus? He is Messiah God. He is the Son of God. He is God's anointed one. Everyone who has ever been saved has come to terms with who is Jesus. Number three, all conversions involve surrendering to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. The devils believe and tremble. The devil knows who Jesus is. The devil knows that he's the son of God. The devils are lost. Why? Because they don't submit to who Jesus is. They know who he is, but they don't bow down to him. One day they will. Amen? Amen. One day everybody will. But in order to be born again from above, you've got to know who Jesus is. And you have to submit to his authority. Next, number four, while we might not literally have a blinding experience with a light, if we've truly been born again from above, we go from blindness to sight and from darkness to light. Isn't that pretty cool? We might not see a blinding light, but y'all, until you know Jesus, you're walking in darkness. You might not know you're walking in darkness, but you're walking in darkness. There's a very clever Geico commercial on right now, and uh, 
woman says, honey, don't forget to turn off the light on your way to bed. And he turns it off and you hear him going, oh, eat, ah, ooh. And the Geico guy says, uh, finally he gets in the room and shuts the door and his wife says, you made it. He said, yes. And the Geico guy says something about kids leaving things in the floor. So kids always leave little bitty toys in the floor. Geico always saves you 50%. But then he says at the very end of that, the woman says, Honey, I think I left the front door unlocked. And he says, Please don't make me go back down there. You see, we may be walking in darkness like the guy walking on the toys. And aren't there things we stump our toes on before we were saved? But when we're saved, we see the light. Number five, sincerity alone doesn't save us. We need to understand this. Saul was sincere, but Saul was sincerely lost. One of the things that got, remember our study in Acts, you get toward the end of Acts, y'all who've been in, in class on Sunday night. One of the things that got Saul in trouble is when he said before the Sanhedrin, to that day that he was standing in front of them, he said, I've never done anything to violate my conscience. And that got the, the Holy Spirit, or the, the high priest rather, just got all excited when he said that. But even when Saul was doing all these bad things, he thought he was doing God's work. He thought he was working in the name of God. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. These people are blasphemers. But on the road to Damascus, he found out these people were exactly right. Saul's worst dream has come true. The very person he's persecuting is alive and well and resurrected. There's nothing worse that could have happened to Saul in Saul's pre-saved condition, amen? But to Saul's credit, when Saul found out he was wrong, he immediately repented and started walking with God. He thought he was walking with God going to Damascus. He sees the light, has a conversation with the Lord, realizes, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? And then he went to Damascus, really walking with the Lord. There's a lot of sincere people. You all have heard the saying before, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There's a lot of sincere people that are lost. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Number six, conversion re involves receiving the Holy Spirit. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, and Scripture uses them interchangeably in the New Testament, they move in with you. Remember we said Jesus, when, when you accept him as Lord of your life, he moves in and cleans house. If you've truly been saved, you've got the Holy Spirit. Next. This is something you might not realize. Conversion involves suffering and enduring. You say, well, how do you know that? In verse 16 of Acts 9, God told Ananias, I've got to show Saul how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. There are a lot of people today that says, if you'll trust God, you won't ever have any other problems. You'll have a lot of money. You'll have a good car. You'll have a nice house. You'll get a good job. You'll get all these promotions. There's only one thing wrong with that. It's not in the Bible. It's false teaching. 
Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you. What if I told you, which one of these sound more appealing? If you'll trust Jesus, you'll never have any trouble. You'll be healthy. You'll be happy. You'll be wealthy. You'll be prosperous. You'll have stuff. Or what if I tell you, when you trust Jesus, your life is not going to be easy. People are going to laugh at you. People are going to call you crazy. You may be put in jail. You may be beaten. You may die for Jesus' sake. There may not be a lot of folks that want to sign up for that one, amen? But is it not the truth? I'm not doing you a favor by telling you your Christian life is easy because it's not. I will say this, the retirement plan is terrific. True conversion is going to involve suffering and enduring for Jesus Christ. Number eight, when you become a new person, you receive a new purpose. On that road to Damascus, Saul was going to arrest Christians. Halfway there, while he got all three quarters of the way there, he saw the light, saw Jesus. Not only did he get a new heart, he got a new purpose, amen? Now he's going to be Jesus' messenger. Jesus did not save you to sit on your pew. I told Miss Mary the other day on the telephone, everybody that's part of our faith family needs a job. We need something to do. God saved us to serve. He saved us to work. He saved us for kingdom work. When you have the new you, it involves a new purpose. It also involves next steps. There's different things. Once you're saved, you're talking about baptism, church membership, discipleship, prayer, reading, learning the, learn what, learning the Bible, learning how that works, learning to talk to others about Jesus, going to visit the sick, going to help the poor, going to work in a soup kitchen, giving stuff away at a giveaway, packing shoeboxes, going on mission trips to Mexico. You get a new purpose. You get a new reason for living. Number nine, conversion involves receiving a new family. In a crazy turn of events, those very people that Saul went to persecute are now his brothers and sisters. And they take him in and they love on him and strengthen him. It said he ate food and was strengthened. Just like food gives us spiritual or physical strength, when you're saved, you need to get into a Bible-believing church where you can have that spiritual food so you can be fed spiritually. A good church will love on you physically. A good church will also feed you spiritually. When you are saved, when you're converted, every person that's ever been converted has a new family. And finally, that's where we're going to wrap this up, Jesus Christ can save the worst sinner. You can't do anything that's so bad Jesus Christ won't forgive you. He forgave Saul. Saul was killing Christians. And Jesus welcomed him with open arms. What's up with that? Y'all, that's grace. That's God's amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind.